0: Hey there, you're listening to an assignment with Anelia, My Place of Purpose, where I meet people, pursuits, and passions worth talking about, where storytelling is as imperfect as life, and where no editing is allowed. The next episode follows. And in, and in this episode, I talk to Nancy Price, author of several, of several books, poems, short stories, and frankly, an amazing woman to people of all generations. One of your books... uh, Hey, Nancy, can you hear me? Yes. Uh You know, and what's really unusual about this podcast is that we are doing it over the phone. Uh, You said that the phone will be much more liberating for you. Yes. Is its it... um, is it the freedom that 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 you speak to to um, a person in in, a, in the virtual space that is more liberating which part is more liberating <laughs> well i suppose this
1: is a very ordinary answer but i don't like to go out when there's so much flu and or have anyone in the house i'm trying to keep myself alive so that's my reason for us talking on the telephone this
0: morning <laughs> Well, that's wonderful. You know, you have uh, been a role model, like I said earlier, for so many women of so many generations, and you and I have talked before. I believe I interviewed you about 10 years ago, and so it's such a joy now to talk to you 10 years later. Um, this, this particular program, which I do, is uh, about people finding their purpose, their, their purpose in life, and the place of their purpose. Yours is creative writing, and here you are at 94, still creating daily. How does That's that How does
1: that happen? How does that happen? <laughs> well, I think I'm just in the habit <laughs> I've been doing it so much of my life it all all of this started I think way back in my childhood um, it has its roots back there, and I've just been doing it ever since both the art and the writing
0: but 94, that that's a long road to travel. Do you sometimes step back and say, wow, I'm 94 and still able to do this and still able to enjoy it?
1: Yes, it's a miracle. And uh, my son and I just look at each other and say, you know, this is a gift. It
0: really is a gift to me. Yeah. So listening to you talk and laugh, and one would be hard-pressed to believe that, that uh that you're 94. What has age added to the act of creative writing?
1: It just gives you a tremendous amount of living so that you can work out, I think, a lot of your problems with writing and with drawing uh, as you go. And it gives you all this length of time and all these contacts that you've made. My travels, my friends my
0: teachers, uh, my my family. Tell me a little bit about um, what, what was it like when you started? What was it like to decide I'm going to be a writer? Or did you decide, did, did the purpose find you or did you find your purpose?
1: <laughs> well, it started, I think, probably when I was born. My parents were both college graduates and they did a lot of reading and they read to me. And I learned to read very early and I read and read and read. And I drew. My father built me a little chair and table and cupboard in the dining room and I kept my art things there and I so I was drawing and I was writing stories uh, before I was 12, 10.
0: Do you remember your first story? <laughs>
1: I think so. It is about was about a boy. It began a boy sitting on stairs, a halfway down to the downstairs of his house, and looking at this old grandfather clock. And it was going to be the story of that grandfather clock. Now, I don't know what it was going to be. It never materialized.
0: <laughs> but you remember the story.
1: Yes. It's just a picture in my mind of a, bo- of a boy sitting on the stairs looking at a grandfather
0: clock. To this day that is amazing <laughs> you you said you were you said you were twelve years old, right? So far, yes, so but before that um uh,
1: the the Detroit News had a wonderful thing. I wish every newspaper had it. They had a child's children's page, and children with uh, their teachers' help sent in their stories and poems and drawings, and a prize of a book was given every week. And it was very clever of the newspaper because it gave the child's name, the parent's name, and the teacher's name, with the thing, the things the children wrote and did. And so I got quite a few prizes on the on the uh, Detroit News page, children's page. That certainly started me out.
0: You know, and I was uh, very young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it really is hard to think about where newspapers were when you were a child and where they are today, because that would be a, a sad story to, 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 uh, to reflect on. But also, will be somewhat of an, of an instructive story. You know, as you know now, newspapers are, are trying different ways to survive and evolve with the times and with technology. Uh, but that would, that would have been different when you started, and clearly, clearly, you benefited from that.
1: Oh, I did. And I was very lucky. Not only did I have that, but Edsel Ford of the Ford family bought a great big barn downtown in Detroit, and he refurbished it, and he filled it with every possible art material that a child could use. And it was called the children's house. And your your, your, um, teacher would recommend you if you were an art student. And you could go there, use any of the materials, make anything you wanted from a mural on the wall to weaving a rug. And if you made two, you could take one home. It cost nothing. And my dear father drove me. the heart of Detroit seven miles every Saturday morning to go to the children's house. (laughs) And when I had to leave Detroit with my parents, um, the the woman who ran it, Frida Pepper, told my parents she wanted me to become her assistant at the children's house. Now that is strange because that probably would have made me some kind of artist. But I came to Iowa and became a writer.
0: <laughs> wow. So so what, what your father invested in you and what a philanthropist invested in children as a whole, that really paid off big time. That's Delo- right. Those two things, when you think of it, started me
1: on my way, and they were great gifts in both cases. The Detroit News, and I did have poems printed on the editorial page there too. <laughs> so that was nice. Um, they helped me with my poetry and Ed Ford helped me with my art. And I think right there my life was really enriched.
0: You know, you know, we've really um abandoned that that aspect of newspapering and, and journalism where we empower and enable other people to create and create that space for them to um to aspire.
1: Yes, it's a marvelous thing for people, adults and businesses to step in that way and I'm sure that many of the young children I knew there probably made their way into the arts some way Mm -hmm. but when I came to Cedar Falls I was uh, in my junior, I was starting my junior year of high school and by then I had won prizes in the Detroit News and I had also won prizes in scholastic magazine um, they gave prizes for poems and i had had won those so that by the time I was in a junior in high school, I had published, and I had done artwork already
0: so thinking back as a child at that time and and having your confidence and Kind of boasted by these experiences. Did the, did this impress your your peers at the time? What was it like for your friends in school? What did they think of your creative self? My high school. Yeah. Did you say?
1: Oh. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did things there, and I had I had one teacher in high school that made a great deal of difference to me. Here at the uh, school, the university school which I went to, the Malcolm Price Laboratory School, it was called, (laughs) after my father. (laughs) My father was so pleased to have that school name for him. Uh, It meant a great deal to him. And uh, when I went there, I had a teacher, uh, an English teacher, who did a phenomenal thing. I wish I had asked her, because I didn't know I was going to teach literature and writing. If I could have her exercises, what she did, she came early every morning and over on the bulletin board around the room, she would write four versions of a poem about the same subject. And she would ask us, which is the true poem?
0: Hmm.
1: And that was utterly amazing to me. I would come early and I would sit at those poems because... Some of them used antique um, words, but that didn't mean they weren't the best ones. And some were free uh, writing, and some were iambic pentameter. And you had to decide where the real artist was.
0: I wish I had those copies. Did you did you ever guess right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) It took me a while with each one, though. You had to cross out everything else. You had not to make anything any difference, but the fact that one of those poems spoke to you.
0: So, so and true that's art. about all. That's about all you could say to yourself. Right, right. So, so true art speaks to us. True I, art. True, true art speaks to us somehow.
1: Yes, and I I knew that then. Uh, I'm sure I had done enough already, so that I recognized that. I don't think the class did. I mean, they must have been just sitting there, say, "I'm going to just choose one, and say it, is it?" You know. <laughs> they had, they didn't have the experience writing. I don't think that I did. They had other kinds of experience, and that worked very well in some of the other classes.
0: <laughs> so, so it strikes me that it strikes me that that you remember the names of, of the people just outside of your immediate family, teachers, benefactors, role models that kind of led you along the way to become a creative writer.
1: Yes, the woman with the poetry was Margaret this, And she was a stern teacher. And but uh, I learned a lot from her. I had several in high school. And then uh, I went to Cornell and I had some very good teachers there. But more than anything else, I got to writing for the Cornell Husk, which was a student newspaper. And then I began sending out my poems. And before long, when I got married and started having children, I was publishing probably 15 poems a year in different magazines, the Atlantic, Saturday Review, um the women's magazines in those days they printed poetry. The Ladies' Home Journal and so on would print my poems. So I was I was piling
0: up a, a book. That that's a, that that would be one way to enter into into the field of creative writing, through poetry, which is what happened with you. Did 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 you have a reader of uh, of of your poetry? Uh, you know, starting to you know, from childhood through adulthood? Did you share it with family members or or teachers, perhaps?
1: Well, I had uh, my mother, and fo- my mother loved literature, and she had gotten a bachelor's degree in, at Cornell uh, in literature, and she really loved it, and I would give my things to her, and my father would read them. And uh, then I read a book to my children every night. I sat in the hall, and they lay in their beds so they wouldn't argue with each other. <laughs> and I read all the great books to them uh, night by night. And uh, so I made all three of my children love books. And uh, I could talk to them. And now I discovered, too late, in some ways, that my littlest child is the best reader of my work that I have. He has a real understanding of literature that he can tell me what's wrong and what's right and what he likes.
0: Would that be David?
1: Pardon? That would be David, yeah. That would be David, right? Yeah, and he's in biology usually. He has a Ph.D. in biology. He's the last person you'd
0: think of. <laughs> well, well, maybe maybe we should rethink our our understanding of biology. Right. That could be another way to look at this. So, David is, is the greatest reader you have. The first reader now of your of your work for now. Yes, I have the best reader for my life. I
1: have two other friends that read women, and they're a lot of help to me too. But it takes it takes a person to feel it and then to be able to say it. And those are very rare. They really are. They can say, "I like this book." It made me feel good, you know, but they can't tell you why or on what page.
0: Tell me what you do with that. Obviously, there has to be trust between you and the reader. You have to trust your judgment, and they have to trust their judgment, and in turn, you do something with the feedback. What do you do with the feedback? Do you listen to it? Do you take it in stride, or do you ignore it?
1: Oh, with my son, I will start the next morning working on my book because I know he's found something I was missing. And this particular book of mine, it's the last one I think I will ever write. It's The Woman Who Slept With the Enemy is the title. And it's a sequel to Sleeping With the Enemy. It's the story of the woman who slept with the enemy and what happened to her. And this has been the strangest book I ever wrote because I didn't know what was coming next. I usually have a book at least planned. But this one suddenly opened up, and David and I were both just amazed at it. And my daughter-in-law reads it, um, and, and, and all of us were just amazed that this happened the way it did. I've never had a book that almost wrote itself. And it's an enigma. It's going to be, the reader is going to <laughs> be very <a great> surprised.
0: <laughs> so so you told me you started writing about two years ago, is that right? Yes, that's right. And so did you just wake up one morning and say, here it is, the woman who slept with the enemy is right in front of, of me. Sarah is her name, right? I didn't hear you when you said that. I'm not really? hearing
1: it.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I will just repeat it. So so you woke up one morning and Sarah Burney was sitting in your living room or was it in your in your kitchen and and saying I'm the woman who slept with the enemy. Is that how it began? <laughs> no, it didn't. It began
1: with two young people who were overweight and were being bullied. Huh. And that was the way I knew. I could get into the story. Otherwise, I couldn't. I had to produce new characters to get to the story. So on the first page, as I told you, uh, almost everything about the book (laughs) is told. And I hope that I probably have written this first page 25 times, more than that, maybe. It had to be just right. 25 times for
0: page one. Do you
1: want me to read it?
0: Yes, please. Please do.
1: All right. I, and by the way, it's written as an I. The whole thing is first person. I was only a high school girl named Rose Dunn when Whit told me his secret. Quote, I'm writing a novel, sleeping with the enemy. If I read it to you, will you tell me what you think of it? Unquote. I'd never seen Whit Farley until school began in the fall of 1983. My father and I lived two miles out of Cedar Falls among the Iowa cornfields. Our only neighbor was an empty farmhouse across our lane. But one day we heard that a family called Farley had bought the house and saw a moving van unloaded there after dark. A new truck and car were parked in the farmyard and the house lights were lit. I just baked a chocolate cake and I said to my father, Ron, let's take my cake over to the Farley's and tell them they're welcome to the neighborhood. Good idea, Ron said. And in a few minutes we started across the lane. Then we stopped, looked at each other, and went home because someone in the Farley house had begun to scream and scream.
0: Wow, that's the first page. Wow. So we now we need to know what there's, who is screaming and what they're screaming about, what's going on in the family, in the Farley house.
1: <laughs> oh dear, that was a hard page to write.
0: Yeah. What What was difficult was it the the detail that that was torturous. What What was the hard part about that? In
1: in the first place, it had to be changed all the time because I didn't know what I was going to put in this book until I suddenly realized what I was doing. And when I told David, he just sort of jumped up and down and said, oh, boy. Um, And it's so difficult to do. And so then I have to go back when that happens. When I get an idea about the book, I have to go back and rewrite everything that went up to it in this case because I changed everything. Uh it, it's a bit of fascination to me, an utter
0: fascination. Now that you read it to me, does it sound the it, does it sound the way you want it to sound to sound? Is it exactly this the, the the tone that you want to strike? Is it is it the way you want it to be?
1: That's right, because I've told you so much. I haven't told you, but I think you've picked it up. Uh she tells that she has a great secret in the first sentence that she knows this boy isn't writing a book. And I put it there because I want the reader immediately to know that this is a sequel to Sleeping with the Enemy um, and it's going to be involved with that book because so many people have read it. So that's in the first sentence. The -hmm. second one, she's a girl living with her father alone and a neighbor moves in. And you see that they're lonely out there. Father and daughter alone, two miles from Cedar Falls. And she knows they're close by their conversation. I think you feel it, do you? Mm hmm. Yeah. Let's take our cake over the fire, ladies. Our cake. Good idea. And then they look at each other without speaking, and go home. Uh, so I've set up in one page two main characters, more than that, four or five main characters. Uh, the place, the year, and everything, and that's always my aim. I have to give that to the reader so that he won't, he will turn the page.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's really, it's. Uh, I I feel really blessed uh, that that you that you read that first page to me. It is somewhat akin to journalism, and you would, you would know that because you worked for the newspaper in college, right? That you're trying to hook the reader with the with the lead of a story. You, you just want them to keep reading.
1: Yes, you're giving every author ought to be giving the reader who picks up the book and looks at the first page a fish hook. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to catch them because life is so busy, and they'll pick that book up and they'll read the first page, put it down again, unless you catch them. And unless you do it honestly, start at the beginning or what it is, they have to know right away.
0: I love that you talk about writer honesty, and I love that you position yourself as a writer in, 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 in the in the space of a person who is a busy person. They, they have so many things pulling at them that if you don't grab them, you only have probably 30 seconds, I think, I estimate, 30 seconds. For a person to decide if they would continue to read or not, I know that is fairly true for a news story, um, and and for a book, it you know the, the reward has to be much greater to um, to finish it, to keep reading and to finish it. So that's the importance. You told me you were illustrating that that book yourself. Yes, I have done it. It's got 22
1: uh, illustrations. I think. well, no. Yes, this is the book that has twenty-two illustrations. They begin each chapter, uh, just a half a page is is the is the, uh, the illustration, and so each one is is different, and they've been fun to do. The fir- this first page has an illustration of three boys shouting. Oh, yeah, their mouths wide open, teeth showing. They're nasty kids.
0: I was just going to ask you what is the first illustration and 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 uh, so so what's the um what's the relationship between words and, and images between the, the the chapter and the illustration because you're trying to convey something different in a completely different nutshell with the illustrations and I don't know how many people know that you're an awesome illustrator.
1: <laughs> well, it's wonderful to be able to do and these three boys I did twice. The first time I just had three high school boys yelling. And I I threw that picture away because I wanted to say a lot more. And so these three young men's faces, their mouths are wide open, their teeth are showing, they show hate. And it's all in black and white, these three faces. They show hate they're not cheering something they're laughing at something and they think it's awfully funny and they're calling its names
0: so 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 the illustration is another way of telling a story quickly and 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 piquing our interest you know continuing to turn the page to see why but
1: the thing is, if you put a picture like that on the first page, which has no Ill, no explanation at all, then you'd better hurry up pretty fast to say what it's about. Because the reader will look at those three boys yelling and screaming, and they'll say, what kind of boys are they? Mm-hmm. Well, the next page, you want to hear it? The next paragraph or so? Yeah.
0: yeah. You want me to read it? Yes, please, please. I mean, you you really are keeping me in suspense here. I really want to know.
1: (laughs) All right, the second page of this book says, The next week September began, and so did my junior year in high school. Dad and I still hadn't seen our Farley neighbors. The school principal gave a speech the first day and then told the assembly he'd like to introduce our new junior classmate, Whitman Farley from Detroit. I couldn't believe what I saw. Whitman Farley was overweight, like me. Now the Bailey boys and Dex Hale would have two of us they could bully after school. Whitman would be yelled at, like me, called two-ton truck or fatso. The teachers pretended not to notice. Sometimes those boys called me Farmy, too, because I didn't live in town. Just as I thought. Those yells began the first afternoon when classes were over and our school's front hall was crowded. There was a Bailey boy in each of the top three grades, and the three of them stood against their lockers and shouted, Fatso, two-ton truck, balloonie. As I followed Whit to the door, I saw that Whit was doing just what I did, pretending the bullies didn't exist. But I thought it was harder for him because boys are supposed to fight
0: back. Now
1: you know a lot more characters.
0: Now I know a lot more (laughs) characters, and I know what the girl probably would would form a relationship with this boy because they are both bullied. And now I... They, now you also explained to me the illustration, which I haven't seen, but you told me about. Now, now that also puts the illustration in context.
1: Yes, it has to pretty soon because I, otherwise it, it, the reader just says, "Huh?" You know, what's that got to do with it? But now we know who they are. They're Dex Hale and the Bailey Boys.
0: Now, when you write, do you handwrite? Do you uh, handwrite, or do you type it? How does that that the practical aspect of it work?
1: Oh, I work on the computer. Um, it's the easiest way to do. You can correct things so easily. Take them out, put them in.
0: Mhm, mhm.
1: What a wonderful machine!
0: I didn't have it until the last few books, and I really love it. What about uh, reading out loud? Do you read the chapters to yourself out loud, or do you have someone read them to you so you can put yourself in the shoes of the listener?
1: No, I've never done that. Um, I've never had people read it to me, or I I don't read it out loud. I hear it in my head, I guess, and that's enough for me. <coughs> and you have to watch because there is a rhythm. There is a rhythm rhythm um, yes. that you use short and long and involved and simple. For instance, the next sentences are, September yes. was hot that year the next week a big sign in a pasture at the edge of town said 1983 cedar falls iowa autumn fair i sat at a card table in the shade selling honey from my dad's beehives rows of golden bottles under a sign delicious iowa honey <laughs> I, can hear hear r- I can hear
0: the i can hear the rhythm there can you hear I the feel- rhythm I, 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 I believe in that and I and I can hear it and you're such a great reader because it just flows.
1: Well, and it stops where it should. It starts where it should and it's a job. Oh. And the next sentence is suddenly there was Whit Farley as hot and sweaty as I was looking at the bottles of honey my sign and me quote a delicious Iowa honey. That's right, he said and grinned. Rose Dunn, Ronald Dunn's daughter. How's business?
0: Well, <laughs> I, I I can visualize the guy. I can, I can. <laughs> tell me, uh, tell me about uh, Cedar Falls, Iowa. What? Where does uh, where does that fit in your in your identity as a writer?
1: Well, I love using it in my books, and I do a great deal of that uh i know the i know it and i am sure of it, so I don't have to fumble around trying to look up some other the city and I don't want to use a big town i've been lived in Boston i've lived in detroit I've lived in london but i I just don't uh i want to use a place I'm intimately acquainted with.
0: And and here you you lived as a child, right? Starting in your fairly early on.
1: Well, I came here, as you know, in my junior high uh, years. So that's a long time to be in Detroit. But I was out in the edge of Detroit, where the new houses had been built, and that's an unusual kind of place with the the house is going up every week
0: around you. Uh, it's not something I could use. Right. So Cedar Falls, you know, you are one of the ambassadors of Cedar Falls that, that has really done so much for this town. You well, know, I, I do enjoy in it.
1: Yeah. I had fun because this little park, Searly Park in, in Cedar Falls, I use in my books. And, uh, It was the park I saw from all our front windows of our family home. Our family home where we raised our children was right across from the park. And so all my married life mostly with my children, I looked out at that park. (laughs) So now I've given them um, a new table and two benches um, for for the little Surly Park. And they've put up a stone for me. I don't know if you've seen it.
0: I have, I I have. I was just going to tell you there is a stone with your name on it and honoring you. And this was, what was it last fall that it was done? uh,
1: A couple of years ago.
0: Mm -hmm. And then
1: uh, this last fall, they put up the little book, uh, library book, where children can come in and take a book and bring it back. These new ones that are popping up all over the country. Little boxes that are out in public and you can help yourself to the books.
0: Yes, yes. And, and and actually, a friend of mine now lives in that house that, that used to be your house at one time.
1: Oh, really? I've been in their house, and I've met their three little girls. Yes. They're a nice family. We're glad they're there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, when was the last time you went inside that space? Um,
1: they were awfully nice. They opened their house up to the uh, buses of... Visitors that came to go through the houses that I had used um, and in the houses I lived in. And uh, they opened up their house so that the people in the buses could go through it. And I thought that was asking a lot. (laughs) But I had painted a big mural in there. I painted murals in our family house. And they wanted to show that. So they were very kind. They let people tramp through their living room, dining
0: room to see my mural. (laughs) <laughs> what what does it look like to you now that you see it so many years later is is that is that evocative of some emotions that that at the time were not exactly um were different at the time
1: Well I was a new mother uh, I had three young children and I I was home a lot so I I painted three big murals uh, Paris upstairs and this one downstairs and then just trees on the way upstairs and uh, I think it was a way of keeping my hand in when I was such a busy mother I had three kids two years apart you know <laughs> it did keep me pretty, pretty busy
0: <laughs> it's amazing that the new owners have uh, preserved them and, and have honored that that art and kept yes, isn't it isn't that intact. nice
1: I do appreciate it I painted it with a special paint that's washable, and so I think it lasts. Um, it was very good paint that I used.
0: Yeah, just returning to those memories, I'm sure was was special for you, oh, when, yeah. you when you went with the tour, right? Uh huh.
1: And I had my daughter-in-law and my son and daughter with me,
0: and that was nice too. It's kind of
1: a family affair. Hmm.
0: So tell me about um, sleeping with the enemy. You know, in, in a way, people talk a lot about this book, uh, and it has also, of course, been portrayed by Julia Roberts in the movie. And uh, in in 1987, I believe, is when the book came out. Yeah. Uh, approximately, right? 1987. You you. This was your third book. You had written two before, and you wrote several others. You've written several others since. Um, What do you think about this particular book has kind of held the, the, has fascinated the public heart and the public mind?
1: I think that we are becoming more and more alert to the hard lives that we give women all over the world, and I think I've been writing about that often in my books because every woman keys into that. And let's face it, the women read the books, you know. (laughs) And so they know people who have had a terrible marriage, uh, suffered, been hurt physically and morally and mentally. And when they find a book that talks about that, I think think they feel, yes, I I know about that.
0: They feel connected in a way. Connected with... Sometimes with with unspeakable things, I was thinking this morning as I was reflecting on on some of the important conversations you and I can have in this interview, is um, about female characters, especially, and and lately in the news I'm sure you you are aware of the, the the stories that have come out about women surviving abuse in in the hands of of bosses or uh, husbands or people who are promising them career advancement. And uh, I'm sure you've seen this in media organizations, in sports, in politics, in medicine. Um, And one thing I found very interesting, and I I think this shows me that times have changed, is that once a woman tells her story in public, her story of abuse, comes forward with her name, her face, here is what happened to me. Other stories begin to emerge. Yeah, other, other stories, and, and I think you know I I hesitate to use the word revolutionary, but perhaps you're, you're you're maybe it was visionary. Maybe what you did with maybe visionary is a better word here. Visionary. Maybe sleeping with the enemy was visionary in the sense that it allowed that space for for women to speak about or to think about abuse, mental abuse, verbal abuse. Um, you know, what this character goes through. And maybe it was a little bit safer uh, because it was in, in a novel. It wasn't a – it it didn't have the rawness of the stories that we hear today in the news. Um, and maybe the time was – obviously the time was different. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I have received many letters from women. Um it was really a thrill. I hadn't expected women to write me the way they did. You saved my life. I've left my marriage. I didn't realize that there was a cruelty that could be done with words as well as with actions and both. Yes. And I got away from that and I've got a new life and I want just want to thank you. Uh, that's what a author loves to hear more than anything else, else I think in the world.
0: Yeah. So, so here, here you have a fictional story, but it speaks to real people, and then they, they, they take action. They, they, they make a change. They, they, they come into awareness. That, that is, yeah. in, that's impactful. That is really special. I, I don't it know. Is. That, I don't know that I, that. I didn't
1: expect it. You know, I expected that women would read the book and say, "Yeah, that's my life. That's where I'm living." But I never thought they even have the courage to write me and say thank you, you know.
0: What have you done with those letters? Are, are you keeping them?
1: Oh, I think I've got them stashed away somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. When you're my you...
1: age, everything is stacked up very high.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me, um, tell me what is uh, the. Uh, the one story that 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 really of all the books you' have written all the novel the novels the um the poetry the short stories what which one are you most partial to?
1: my goodness that would be hard to say uh, they're so special. My third book was about the slavery in South Carolina, and my husband and son went down with me there. And we went over the plantations that are still there. They're used now for hunting grounds and things like that. But Mm. I've seen the slave houses, and I've talked to them down there. And I've read everything I could about slavery. And I illustrated that book and brought it out again about a year ago. It's called A Natural Death. And it's based on the saying, no slave." Should die a natural death. Why is there dancing and singing in the slave quarters? (laughs) And so that's about the slavery in South Carolina. It was considered probably the most benign of any of slave societies, but it was not, (laughs) of course. (laughs) It was not. And I went down there and I read everything I could and I tried to produce a book that would show how corrupting it could be for both white and black and how they could fight against it and whether they would win at all. And uh, I had letters from all over about that book. Uh, They just, they wanted to tell their own stories to me and they had wonderful reviews. So I brought it out again. And I did my illustrations this time. And and the first first illustration is of two little children, a little baby girl and a little boy, three years old, lying in a cornfield in the August heat of South Carolina. They're dying. And their mothers have left them there in the hope that the white man drives past with his car so it takes them. That's the only hope they have.
0: Talk about abysmal desperation.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh. And he
1: does. <laughs> yes. And the last thing in the book, his name is Amzai. Takes those children. Raises them. teaches them they can read. They know every line of the Bible and he marries them and they're Mm -hmm. taking the slaves. And their first little black boy ends the book. There's a little baby. The master of the the slave house wants to know what they'll name this new baby. And the father says, Amzah. This is the white man that saved
0: them. That's
1: oh.
0: where you oh. so, so this is the one that, that's dearest to you as, as author. This is the one that, that you hold closest to your heart.
1: Well, it's hard to say because every one of them has a oh, great I... deal of you in it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can't write very well unless it does, so... But this one I thought I hoped I did something for the black cause and and for black history and for the feeling black people have.
0: Uh, and actually and actually today, fittingly, is Martin Luther King said Junior said for you know, fittingly for our conversation. Do you think do you think this book will be turned or should it be turned into into a movie? Now that we have Netflix, we have all these independent producers, creative types that are interested in heartfelt stories
1: well they have to get to the to the reader uh, to the readers and to the filmmakers and I don't know how that's done Uh, my books uh, you just send them out into the world and you never hear from them from filmmakers I think this wonderful uh, reaction uh, to my thinking of the enemy was so exciting because you love to have people read your book. You love to have them
0: make movies. Yeah. Yeah, it, they reach a different audience. Speaking of movies, I, I think you told me that, that they are going to do another version of Sleeping with the Enemy. Is there yeah,
1: it will come out uh, either next year or the year after. And they have the writer-director already. She's a black woman. Um, oh, wow. wonderful! She's made two movies. I wish I had all these facts in front of me, but I don't. But she's made two two movies, and um, she's writing the script now. That's where it is. And uh, so I just have to sit around and turn my <laughs> thumbs. But I have got the new books to sell. Both two books now. If that movie comes out, I think my agent can get me two book companies to to publish them because they would be hooked to the
0: movie. Yeah, well, what you told me earlier is that it is somewhat coincidental or maybe perhaps, I don't know, maybe fate had something to do with it, that you started writing this new book, and at the same time, they, other creators were considering redoing Sleeping with the Enemy or having a new version, your interpretation of it. Do you ever get asked what what should be in the movie? Do you ever get consulted about What should be in the movie and how it should be played or is it a completely separate process in your experience?
1: It's completely uh, I have no contact at all with the movie at any time so far. um, No one ever called me or talked to me or wrote me about it. It Mm. just was produced by them. (laughs) And uh, of course now 20th Century Fox has become um, Fox Searchlight, and it's a branch of Disney, and so this is a different outfit. I don't know how they're going to handle it, and it wouldn't surprise me to make a, a black, make it a black cast. Uh, she has done black movies, and so this is going to be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be interesting, and I also think because this other the fir- the first movie has. Permeated the culture so deeply. Believe it or not, even people who are in their twenties today, who who are so distant uh, from from that period, uh, they 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 do know about sleeping with the enemy. Um, Yes,
1: I noticed that. I mean, not only that, but foreign countries. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's India has made eight or nine versions of sleeping with the enemy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> have you have you watched have you watched the um, the, the different countries versions of of, of the world? No, well,
1: because I know I don't know how I would get hold of them or or I don't know whether I could bear to see them. Heaven knows what they've done with them because those are these are countries. Uh, some of them who have such a different idea of life than we do that it would be fascinating, of course.
0: Yeah. So 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 once once you produce the book. It takes on a life of its own and and just like a child they they have their own life and, and 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 you're happy for them that's right, and you just
1: think, well, something about that story, and of course the something about that story is woman abuse, yeah, that's what I am most interested in, and heaven knows there are countries that need to hear it. And yes. hear it, and
0: hear it. So, yeah. Tell me, just tell me a little bit. I wanted to ask you about this this piece because I think a lot of people, a lot of women, go through what you went through in your personal life, and that is losing your husband at a fairly young age, and and you and continuing to live and continuing to make life happen and continuing to Produce creative work um, in the face of, of of a loss like this. Well, how, of how course, we had
1: 50 ago. years. We have, yes. uh, we were we our marriage
0: lasted 50 years. Yes. You know, I I've never heard anyone say we. You know, it was enough. You know, every time I I, I speak to someone who was widowed, they 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 say it was. I was I was I was blessed to have all the time together, but I wish we were here together. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that that's a complex. That's a complex issue. Um a lot of the women that I interview, they they sometimes struggle with how to how to continue, how to um keep keep going. And you have you have found a way to do just that.
1: Oh, yes, but I have wonderful children
0: yeah uh,
1: and oh my goodness so <laughs> john my John my my second child, who died so early at fifty, he mm-hmm. was a creative child, he knew what I was trying to do. We had talked before he died i he he built a house for me on top of his house in wow. Florida <laughs> he and his son built, mostly built it. It was a little apartment above his house. And so I went down there and stayed about four months of the year for quite a few years before he died. I wouldn't give anything for those years.
0: I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you if you were, you or someone else were to write a fictional book uh, with a character, a fictional character called Nancy Price. What would the title of this book be, do you think?
1: Oh, good heavens, I have no idea. <laughs> the Fool, probably. <laughs> oh, dear. You never know what you're doing when you're writing. You're writing off in left field somewhere, and you don't know where you're going until you get there. So,
0: <laughs> What do you think, if if you were to give a beginning writer a nugget of your wisdom of your writing wisdom, what would be the one tip that they should take away from someone like you who is successful and impactful in her writing career
1: well, i guess i'd I'd say the one thing a writer has got to have is loving to write if If you don't love, if you want money or you want prestige or you want your friends to admire you, or any of these other reasons, forget it. It's too much work. You've got to love it. And, and if you love it, and if it's what you'd rather do than anything else, then you're on your way.
0: What do you think your legacy is going to be? Pardon? What do you think your legacy is going to be? My what? Your, your legacy. Oh, I
1: don't know. I hope I'll help married women who are in trouble and lovers who are in trouble. And uh, I hope I'll keep people enjoying themselves for an hour or two reading a book. You know, that's a wonderful thing to get away from all your troubles and even where you're sitting and go to another world. And whether I've put my readers... In a British warship fighting Napoleon, or a slave plantation. Wherever I put them, it puts my readers somewhere else. It gives them that, that gift.
0: Nancy, so you have been a delightful, delightful interview. I I learned so much. And I'm so grateful because your your uh, brilliance and your candor shines through, and and I think you didn't hold back. You just just told it the way you live it. <laughs> well, that's as close as I can come. Yes, yes, you did. I thank you so much for doing this. I'm greatly appreciative, and thank you all for listening. And here's my two cents. Stay purposeful. Signing off. I'm Anelia K Dimitrova, the Ironing reporter who lives for beat.